The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The English parish has been a source of spiritual consolation and a certain degree of social comedy for over a thousand years. It's very old and it's very vulnerable, it turns out, to the Covid pandemic. It's the topic of my discussion this week with Holy Smoke's regular contributor, Dr Gavin Ashenden, former chaplain to the Queen, former Anglican vicar and academic for many years, now a Catholic, who has some wonderful and touching reminiscences about the experience of being a vicar, and some rather less comforting thoughts about the politics that are killing off this much-loved, if increasingly rarely attended, institution. So why, at the end of the day, is he so optimistic? Well, here's our conversation. Gavin, the churches may have stayed open during lockdown this time, which I understand was actually, I think, an argument from Michael Gove that it should happen, rather than pressure from the bishops. I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. So they may have stayed open for communal worship, but there aren't many signs of life. Covid has come at precisely the right moment for bishops, be they Anglican or Catholic, who find themselves saddled with a large number of parishes which aren't really working anymore or which are too expensive or inconvenient to keep up. And so COVID gives them the opportunity to close them. Now, of course, that raises the question of why are these parishes so moribund that it's easy to close them? But just on that first point, you'd agree with me, the virus has arrived at a convenient moment, as it were, Yes, I think so. I've had, I've had a number of friends, some of whom have said that after the first lockdown, they had more people coming to church than before. And that bucks a system and also disagrees with our thesis. But it's certainly the case at the moment. I think people are holding their breath to discover how many people are going to come back to church. After the church made a public statement that coming to church really didn't matter very much because it mattered so little that the bishops and the clergy were willing to close the doors. But I certainly think in the grander scheme of things, it's probably easier to allow a church to, to suffer death by a virus than it is to commit Episcopal euthanasia. It, it was going to be very difficult for for some of the Church of England bishops to close down ailing churches that had no sign of hope, really, either fiscally or, or, or demog- demographically. Uh, so the, the virus has done, I think, them a great favour. It, it's, it's, it's done it for them. It's very sad, in a way, that so many parishes were ailing, because parishes, whether in the Catholic Church or, more obviously, in this country, the Church of England, are part of our national mythology. And I say mythology because they crop up in popular entertainment, especially sitcoms in a way that perhaps they never really existed in reality. One thinks of the Vicar of Dibley or before that Dad's Army, or it seemed that every 1970s sitcom had a, at least one episode per series where there'd be a local vicar come around, very sort of absent-minded, rather posh, and there'd be some mishap over tea. And so the comedy vicar was a, a national stereotype and maybe quite close to the truth, but 
I'm not sure how strong a role the parish actually played in English rural and urban life, but whatever role it did play, it's been struggling for a long time, hasn't it? And you were vicar or priest in charge or curate of a couple of Anglican parishes. So this is something you've seen yourself. Yes, I think one of the biggest um, changes has been the gap between the gap that needs to be crossed to get people from their homes into churches. And so uh, in my own life as an Anglican priest, I I did 10 years in parishes in South London and then five years in the Channel Islands recently. And I was very interested in the difference between the two. I, I spent 25 years at a university in the middle. But I remember the great challenge in the 1980s was how did I get people to come to church? Because people kept on telling me they they didn't want to or they felt unable just to wander into a church at a moment of crisis. And so I developed what turned out to be a reasonably successful strategy. And I, I began to have a, a house church or a cell church in my vicarage. And what I found as a, as a parish priest was that you gained a level of trust that allowed you to talk to people about their spiritual longing, their metaphysical quest, on about the third parish hit. So by the time you'd, let us say, done a baptism, done a wedding and done a funeral in a family, you'd earned the right to, to speak to them. And, and I would then, just, you know, everyone's life involved some tragedy and at the checkout counter in the, in the supermarket or wherever you bumped into people, they would start talking about something they didn't understand. And they, they begin the whole business of theodicy. You know, how, how can you believe in a God that allows, you know, my Jimmy to have cancer? So I, I would say to people, well, actually, I've got a group of friends who talk about this in the vicarage. Every one of them has their own tragedy. And we sit down over a cup of tea and we, we talk about these difficult things because they hurt and there's nowhere else to talk. Would you like to come? And I said, well, I won't come to church, but but I'll, but I'll come to your vicarage. Or I'll come to your front room. And so I had this group that ran and uh, in, the, in the corner there'd be a modern translation of the Gospels so from time to time we could reach over without too much embarrassment or fuss and look at what Jesus might say about something but a combination of group therapy and occasional Bible study meant that people began to talk about the theological task of encountering God in lives that were messy and difficult and at some point they'd talk about church and I'd say you're not allowed to go to church. Church is dangerous. In, in church, you'll meet a group of people who are not terribly friendly, in fact. And uh, I can protect you in this group therapy in my vicarage, but I, I can't protect you if you go to church. And then there was, was a wonderful piece of reverse psychology. They would say, well, Vicar, you can't, you can't ban us from going to church. And I said, no, I can't, but I can't, I won't take any responsibility if you go. And they, they would say, well, you know, why is church important? And I'd say, well, you meet God in the mass, you, you meet him in the scriptures. And, and actually it's a hospital for people who are trying to struggle their way closer to love, light, forgiveness. It's a, it's a collective thing. It's wonderful, but it's dangerous. Then after a while, they would, they would find a confidence to say, well, we're going. <laughs> We're going to turn up. But you said, I thought it was interesting, you'll meet a group of people who aren't necessarily very friendly. Now, every parish has its own sort of ecology. Every parish, I think this is, you can probably read across from the Catholic to the Anglicans to the Methodists or whatever. In every parish, there used to be anyway, ladies who did the flowers. There'd be a parish council or its equivalent, church organs or their equivalent perhaps somebody rather difficult with religious delusions, perhaps some troublesome people in the choir. You can see why it was rich territory for sitcoms. Various people with different roles whose 
Dignity was easily affronted. I think that's something in common, isn't it? Well, that's absolutely true. And, and that was the problem, because what one was, in order to grow the church, in order to evangelise, in order to do the kingdom of heaven, you had to get ordinary people who were dealing with things that really mattered and were quite vulnerable and, and put them in a place that was sociologically and psychotherapeutically really quite dangerous. You know, that was part of the difficulty. And one of the things I, I felt was looking at my congregation, sitcoms was one of the best ways of describing the kind of personalities we had. Well, that's no great surprise because the, the people who managed to do the, the sitcoms so well, of course, used character archetypes. And so, uh, of course, in every sitcom, we would find people who conformed to these archetypes. And in every parish, you'd find, you'd find the sitcom people. So you were a vicar in South London. Yes. Nothing like your um, very comfortable rural parish, micro-problem sitcom. Nothing like the small town atmosphere of Warmington-Mont-Sea. Perhaps you could tell us about some of the characters in your parish there and how you were able to deal with their wounded dignity and actually try and instill a sense of Christian mission into this strange little ecology. One of the great things about being in the Diocese of Southwark in the 1980s was that it had a, a really rather wonderful lay readership training programme. And the great problem with people in the parishes were they were spiritually very insecure. They felt they had nothing to offer. They, they weren't particularly holy. They weren't knowledgeable about anything. What, what could they do or give? And that was why one of the reasons why people reverted to a kind of sociology of religion, because they felt more comfortable in, in, in running the equivalent of a religious scout movement than they did in, in the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So, one of the things, as I asked people to do things and they refused, <laughs> I'm no good at this. I, I began to think if I trained them all as lay readers, this might at least give them a sense that they they were as qualified as anybody else. And so although the... Dynasty... Now you better explain what a lay reader is, because for a Catholic like me, it's an unfamiliar term. So a, a lay reader was a form of ministry that uh, that any person in the parish could do, that that had involved teaching them some theology, some Bible, and equipping them to essentially for a liturgical role. Um, but but once it was like having a sort of you know a theological driving license in the parish. Once you had the license, there's a lot you could do. And uh, so people complained and said, "Well, we you know we don't want we don't want to preside over morning and evening prayer every day." And I said, "Well, you won't you know I know you're I know that's what it's about. But actually, once you've been trained, let's see what you're good at in terms of the." Of, of the kingdom of heaven and the Christian life. And, and, the, and the strange thing was my, my sitcom people came to life. So I remember I, I had uh, someone very much, John Le Measurer in Dad's Army, and uh, he was a, our church treasurer, very, very shy and utterly diffident. And after three years of lay leadership training, he turned out to be the most extraordinary preacher. He had insights of a really profound kind, and people hung on his every word, diffident though he was in real life. Uh, and then we also had Captain Mannering, who was an immensely bossy and very difficult, and, and always was always going to be my enemy on the parish church council. Uh, and, and so how could Captain Mannering be subverted? Well, it turned out when he started his lay readership training, he knew everybody in the parish and had done for 40 years, and had absolutely wonderful touch for funerals. And he then became a, a, a means of, of doing all the funerals. And so, I mean, I had to step aside as vicar and let him do it, but he was much better at it than I was. And also I'd been in the parish five years and he'd been in 35 years. So as the public face of the church doing ministry, 
it turned out he was very effective at that. And then, then we also had a kind of a person who ran a paint and decorating shop that was closest to open all hours. A man of enormous enthusiasm and who was very irritating with his Christianity at times. But, but he decided he wanted to lead a, a hit squad visiting all the children on their anniversary of their baptism. And so he gathered a ferocious group of ladies together. That they went, they went through all the parish records, and for the previous forty years, every single week they visited someone who'd been baptized and asked them to come back and to carry a candle in the offertory procession. And so, uh, open all hours in their baptism hit squad turned out to be enormously effective for reaching out into the memory of people who had to do with the parish, but it had gone completely quiet. And so, they turned out to have very real ministries, very real spiritual gifts, and better at those things than the vicar was, who was best served in getting out of the way and releasing them to work out their friendships in the parish and bring people back to church, which they did. I like your reference to a ferocious group of ladies, which will no doubt strike some listeners as sexist, but let me endorse that and say that I have come across some truly ferocious groups of ladies in parishes who are also sometimes um, the most spiritually vibrant and pious people in the parish. Absolutely. And this difficulty that I noticed, I've got help these poor people, but I was, I was a parish organist for a bit. And um, this business of wounded dignity, and from time to time, you know, one of them would throw a strop. And if the parish priest didn't have the necessary diplomatic skills, then there would be awful trouble because it wasn't in the nature of the Catholic Church to go to another parish. Um, did you have to cope with people throwing a straw? Yes, yes indeed. I mean one of the things I, I tried to do was to help one of my, my, my successor and I, I, I remember going through some of the parish records and saying look you know this couple always blow up once a year. They're very generous, they're very kind, they, they, they give quite a lot of money but they have a psychotherapeutic meltdown. And um, I found that what you do is you apologise for everything they accuse you of <laughs> and, and, and you put up with it. And once they've blown up and been very rude to you indeed and, and told you all your defects and you apologise for them, you're good for another 364 days of generous companionship in the parish. But you must let it happen. Uh, as it turned out, he wasn't he wasn't really up for that. And the first time they do it, he said, you can apologise or get out of my church. And so they got out of his church and that was the end of that. What happened to your parish in South London? Uh, well, it, it grew whilst I was there during seven years. I was very grateful for that and for the real generosity and loveliness of, of people who began to move from the sociological scout hut model to, to the kingdom of heaven. So in, in, inevitably, very often one doesn't think much of one's successor, but I think I was upset with my successor because we had tried to move from the um, sociological scout hut model of religion, uh, an organisation that did religion, um, to a deeper piety, uh, an attempt at evangelism, a greater depth of relationship. But the person who replaced me was less was less tolerant of the human mess than I was and, and really wouldn't put up with people blowing up and blowing up and, and getting upset. And so the church began to die. And then after he left, they, they appointed a, a woman and she killed it off. And I, I, I passed by every so often and it, it, it looks as though it's come completely moribund. You know, nothing much is going on. 
I'm not sure that it is. I don't. I. I. It doesn't seem to be open when I go by. Do you know? I, I. I wonder about various churches, and I'm not sure whether they're open or not. And it's difficult to know. I think during COVID, whether they've closed already or are closed for COVID or going to be closed forever after the pandemic's over. I think one of the difficulties that the church has had is that it, it, there's been this gap but between people's ordinary lives and the church. And we've heard for, for generations now that people find it very difficult to walk into church because they, they, they don't know the Bible, they feel theologically inadequate, they're not sure they'll be welcomed. And so one of the greatest problems in parish life at the moment is to, is to find ways of actually getting people into the building. So one of the ways, of course, has been has been wokery. And um, if if the church operates as a chaplain to a woke political culture, then it spreads a pattern of spirituality across what is basically a, a political movement of revolution. But I, I, the trouble is, you don't need Christianity to do that. You you don't need a pattern of spirituality to be woke. Uh, you could just go for the full Black Lives Matter thing, without any religion attached. And so. I I don't think that the strategy that the Church of England has has pursued, which, you know, it had this choice about whether it it retained an, an orthodox anthropology of human beings, and what I mean by that is Christianity teaches that the problem human beings face is sin and they need salvation and they can be forgiven and redeemed, as against the political version, which is there is a real problem in human relationships, but it's but it's hate speech and hate think, and you get re-educated and there is no forgiveness. Well, the trouble is that second political model is so different from Christianity that um, at some point they diverge. And I think I think we're just at the point where they're about to diverge very seriously, which will make it all the more difficult to get people into church as they as they struggle with the difficulties of being a human being, longing for forgiveness and longing for heaven. Well, you talk about two models and I agree that there are two ideal types, as it were. But I've felt for a long time that what's one thing that's so infuriating is the way the message of Christianity and the woke message get mixed up or Christianity gets reduced to wokeness. But there's, you know, there's still elements of Christian spirituality there. And that's almost more maddening that somebody who genuinely is pious with a sense of Christian mission also has a sense of political mission and can't really distinguish the two in the pulpit, say. Yes, and, and the problem with that is that the, the political agendas continue to divide. Essentially, they, they look at human beings through a, through a lens of power relations. And if you're dealing with power relations, you're constantly involved in, in you know, men against women, rich against poor, black against white. It's, but, but whilst the political diagnosis diagnoses, it never produces any, any, any salvation, any redemption, any solution apart from corrective thinking. And so this is a terribly important point at which if the church continues to adopt a political anthropology, a politicised understanding of human nature, it won't be able to deliver what Christianity is there to do, which is to build a bridge between people and their maker, built on on the forgiveness and reconciliation that Jesus wins on the cross, in which case it just becomes a form of of political chaplaincy. And, And politics doesn't need chaplaincy. Well, I think it's worth pointing out that in the history of the Christian church, Western and Eastern, the church has often become completely obsessed with power relations, often to the exclusion of the gospel. And so perhaps, in a sense, it's submission to what Thomas Piketty, the French sociologist or whatever he is, economist, 
rather wonderfully calls the Brahmin left, in its genuflection to the Brahmin left, the church is almost reverting to sort of Renaissance or 18th century English model, where the church was effectively a sort of parasite on power structures. Well, I think that might be true, but the difference was that it, it was always capable of being called out for it. In other words, I mean, for most of the church's life, the ecumenical creeds dealt with who God was, who, how Christ could be both man and God. There wasn't the same emphasis on who human beings were. So the for, for, for most of the church's history, the real arguments have been about the relationship between God and state. But you were always able to use the ecumenical councils and creeds and, and the Bible to, to make some kind of better judgment. The problem that we have today, I think, is that we've become sort of narcissistically concerned with human nature. And, and the ecumenical creeds and councils don't deal with that in such a way. So where do you find a frame of reference reformatting your understanding or your misunderstanding of the human of the human task and that's one of the reasons why protestantism today is so vulnerable to woke both in the liberal protestant sense and the american evangelical because the attempt to find a political solution is so is so pleasing and so tempting it's much easier to do than to do the hard work of reimagining your your biblical anthropology well, you may have noticed that the Catholics under Pope Francis certainly aren't very far behind. It's a bit much to ask the church to reverse a tide of secularization which is engulfing the whole world and whose roots, I think, probably lie in technology and myriad social changes that are incredibly difficult for all institutions to negotiate, and perhaps particularly the Christian church. So it's asking quite a lot <laughs> Christianity is very ambitious. I mean, one of the things I've always tried to understand better is the conversion of Europe. Uh, and, and I'm often asked, you know, what would you what would you change in the church today? And my answer is usually I'd want more monks and more monasteries. And part of the reason for that is because it was the monastic houses of prayer that were the nuclear force behind the conversion of Europe. Christianity's ambition is always to change, to radically change human society it finds. Uh, but it but it, it has to maintain its vision of what it's going to change it to. And that's the difficulty we face today. Not that people are any less ambitious or for, for God, but the fact it's lost its vision of, of what the kingdom of heaven is. So I, I don't think there's any there's any question that we, we shouldn't seek to challenge and change technology, uh, secularism, politicized anthropology. But you have to know what you're aiming for. And that's where the church seems to be have lost its confidence today. Absolutely. And I think, Gavin, you and I would agree that there's something particularly dreary and useless about the leadership of the churches in Britain at the moment. I mean, when I look at Justin Welby, that awful picture of him celebrating a Eucharist on his own, wearing that wretched mask, just as virtue signalling, I've mentioned it before, and then you look at Vincent Nichols retiring, surrounded by accusations that he, he ignored allegations of abuse with this awful business of trying to downgrade the great treasure of the Westminster Cathedral Club. Both of them absolutely bloody useless. Let me put it on the record. But in addition to blaming people for these terrible misjudgments, this terrible managerial obsession, I think there's also... Just a feeling of sadness. 
When I think back to my childhood, I wasn't necessarily very happy going to church. In fact, I was very unhappy going to church. One of the reasons I became the organist was it meant that I didn't have to spend much time paying attention to the service. But looking back, I'm very nostalgic about the people there. And the thought that it's more or less all gone leaves a hole in the, in the hearts of maybe English consciousness. I think it does. In the same way, I think probably Welsh people feel the same way about the disappearance of their nonconformist tradition and Scots about the disappearance of the Kirk, although I think the Kirk was always rather unpopular rather in the way the Catholic Church is in Ireland. But nonetheless, in England, let's say, there's a feeling of loss. Well, there is, but, 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 but Christianity involves a cycle of, of dying and rising again. And one of the things that's happening today is that the loss you've described is, is tragic and, and very sad. But, but Christianity rises again and there are some places and some people where they're doing it well and it becomes deeply attractive. I mean, there are two Catholic bishops, Philip Egan and, and Mark Davies, who are gathering round them people hungry for inspiration and willing to rededicate their lives to Christ and his church. They are fantastic. It's amazing how they stand out from their colleagues, honestly. And I, and I think, therefore, you know, your, your sadness well expressed and true needs to be tempered by the expectation that god brings life out of death and that includes astonishingly it it includes the western church and so there are places in the western church where where there's a, a leadership and a spiritual authenticity and a rekindling of vision which is deeply exciting and and touches people in the most profound and reconstitutive ways and so you know that that's why we go on doing it that's why there's hope Indeed, and before I get too melodramatic and pessimistic about it, I have to remember that right opposite my flat is a church, Mary of the Angels, whose parish priest, Monsignor Keith Baltrop, has a wonderful ministry with wonderful masses, a lovely, understated but beautiful liturgy, and church attendance that's holding up, and an atmosphere that has actually become more potent since the beginning of COVID, because he leaves the church doors open with exposition of Bresser Sacrament every single day. And that's actually had an effect on people passing by in the street who've gone into the church. So before I get too pessimistic, perhaps I ought to just cross the road and pay a visit. Gavin Asherton, always such a pleasure to talk about these things with you. And there are going to be plenty of things to talk about very soon. Damien, thank you very much.